one day a pastor was doing a children's message before his message time. And so he posed a question to the children to begin the lesson time and quickly found himself in a predicament. The question he asked was, what is the name, children, of that little animal with a big bushy tail that lives in the tree and collects nuts for the winter? And the little boy replied, Jesus. You can almost hear him say it, can't you? Well, the pastor said, no, 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 not, not, not Jesus. We're not, I'm, I'm asking you about the animal, the little, little furry animal that lives in the forest and, and can jump real high. And there's even a flying version of it. And, and the boy keeps responding, Jesus, Jesus. And so the parents obviously were mortified. And as they got home, they began to inquire of their son and say, we've taken you to church all your life. How could you think that Jesus was the right answer? And the boy responded, Mom and Dad, I, I know, I obviously know that the pastor was talking about a squirrel. But I kept answering Jesus because I figured that's what he was ultimately going to talk about and what he should have been talking about anyway. As we saw in our last message in the about the book of Romans, pastors and teachers may find new and creative ways to contextualize the gospel so that they can communicate it more effectively with their listeners. But Jesus and the gospel is the unchanging message. It's always the message. It's the message in every age of the church. Our message is always Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It seemed like Paul got that point as well. Paul's singular heartbeat was to exalt Jesus. He said, I, I desire to know nothing among any of you except Christ and Him crucified. And that's his resounding theme throughout all of his letters. And so today we're going to study through three of those letters. That's right, three. Now this is not an attempt to shortchange any of these books, but in our pursuit of understanding his story, that is the story of Scripture, We've tried to gain an understanding of how these books fit together like puzzle pieces. And so the three books we're going to look at today fit together and form an incredible message that will challenge you to take the gospel seriously today. Those three books or letters are Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, where God is put on display as the God of unity, the God of preeminence, and the God of of reconciliation. Two letters written to churches, one that Paul had visited, another one that Paul had not visited, and then the last letter, Philemon, written to an individual. And so turning your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin our journey today. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Thus far, we've seen Paul becoming the exemplary teacher, missionary, church planter, and pastor. He has been on three missionary journeys where he has seen thousands of people come to know Jesus. And as we saw in the book of Acts, Paul was operating off of the axiom that was taught to me by my old church planting professor, Cal Guy, that we should win the winnable now so that they can win the winnable later. Paul's ministry was about multiplication, just as he told Timothy later on that, that he should he should find faithful men who, to whom he can preach the message, and they'll go on and teach others. And that 
exponential multiplication of the gospel is how the church became the force that it was in Paul's day. And yet, at the same time, when Paul did not see those individuals or that city as winnable, he would move on. That's why it's, it, it, it should capture our attention when Paul stays somewhere for an extended period of time. And so each one of these books holds a specific context. And the context of the book of Ephesians is that Paul had stayed there for an extended period of time. And in fact, if we look back at Acts chapter 19, it chronicles Paul's time there in Ephesus and sums it up in this way in verse 10. Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that Paul continued to preach there for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul, prolific for his travels in these missionary journeys, chooses to stay in one place for two years, the city of Ephesus. But as Paul writes this during his imprisonment, the church of Ephesus is about eight years old. And so some people had taken Paul's message from Ephesus and preached it to cities surrounding Ephesus. Epaphras was one of those people. He had taken the gospel to a city called Colossae, about 120 miles away. Now, Paul had never been there, but now that Paul is in Roman prison, Epaphras comes to tell Paul some of the things that the church there is facing and asks Paul if he would write to Colossae. And there, for that reason, because Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians around the same time, the letters are arranged similarly, and there's very similarly, and there's very similar themes, even though even though the focus of the two books are very unique. But then one of those situations in the church becomes very personal. That church in Colossae becomes very personal because it involves two people that Paul had heard of, one that he knew very personally, Onesimus. And the other one, Philemon. And it's thought that Philemon was the host of the church there in Colossae. It was being, the church services were being held in his home. And so Paul writes Philemon to address a specific issue with Philemon and this other person known as Onesimus. And so accompanying the letter of Ephesians and Colossians, Paul writes this personal letter to Philemon to address that situation. So all of these letters open a door to understanding how Paul saw the gospel transforming our lives, which is what the New Testament is all about. So let's see what these letters have to say today. We could summarize the letter to the church at Ephesus, known as Ephesians, as Paul's focus being unity in Christ through the Spirit. Now, in the book of Romans, a church that Paul had never visited, Paul lists over 29 people by by name that he wanted to greet. Yet in, in the letter to the Ephesians, a church that he planted and nurtured for over two years, Paul lists no names. This helps us understand Paul's purpose. It's to give a general exposition of a specific truth that would be applicable to all the churches surrounding Ephesus. This theme is God the Father has redeemed you in Christ and is transforming you by the Spirit to unite you into one church family. And so, how would you feel today if I stood here in the pulpit and tried to lead us all in singing the Auburn University fight song in order to celebrate the fact that Auburn won a game recently? I mean, we're supposed to celebrate miracles, right? As an Auburn fan, I can testify to that. Now, you've never heard me do that, 
sing a college fight song in the pulpit because that's not why we're here, right? We're not here to celebrate schools or universities or sports or even nations. We are here in the Christian church to celebrate someone who transcends all of those, one who is infinitely more important. We are here to celebrate Jesus. This is the chord that Paul strikes in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Over 14 times in these verses, Paul shows how everything is rooted in Christ. In fact, if you've never done it before, I would encourage you to read through chapter uh, 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and underline every time Paul uses the phrase, in Christ or in Him. Over 14 times, you'll find, Paul uses that phrase. God has blessed us in Christ. God has chose us in Christ. God has adopted us in Christ. God is redeeming us in Christ. God is forgiving us in Christ. God is lavishing His grace upon us in Christ. God is revealing His will to us in Christ. The entirety of our salvation is all in Christ. He is the one worthy of praise. And just so we'll understand this, how it's all in Christ... Paul now turns to tell our story in Ephesians chapter 2, how we were lost, but God loved us with a kind of love that pursues the lost and broken, and in Christ turns them into trophies of His grace. I hope you saw and celebrated that as you wrote out your testimony according to the book of Romans that I challenged you to do last week. Now some in the church were Jews, and some in the church in Ephesus were non-Jews. But Paul wants them to see that the ground was equal at the foot of the cross. There's no division among them that matters. There's no distinction that God has made in saving them. And so if there's no distinction that God has made in saving them, then why should there be distinctions between the body as a whole? Shouldn't they look at each other as spiritual equals? Well, sure, they they absolutely should. And yet... There had been this division in the church in Ephesus. And so in chapter 3, in the beginning, Paul rejoices that this has been God's plan the entire time. That from the first promise to Abraham, throughout the whole execution and implementation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to establish the church, his entire intention is to make one new family out of the multitude of families and nations on this earth. This new family is the body of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul repeats this word, one, over and over and over again, seven times to help them understand the necessity of this unity. He encourages them to walk with one another in all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body, verse 4 says, chapter 4, verse 4, verse 4, one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And if that kind of oneness is present in the plan of God, then that should be the goal of your individual church, no matter what divisions are among you, to be one in Christ Jesus and for that unity to take primacy among any division that would seek to take root in the midst of you. 
And so as they grew in this oneness, growing together in this one body, their lives are transformed by the Spirit who dwells within each one of them. If they want unity with one another, they can't focus on their division. They must be unified by the Spirit who is at work within them. In the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is best defined as strength under control. This is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so this body of Christ, this church, these individuals who've been woven together by the gospel, they are meant to use all of their strength under the control and leadership of the Holy Spirit to continue to walk in their spirit, in the Spirit, and to continually submit to one another. In fact, before this famous passage on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, after Paul tells them in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, he ends that section in verse 21 telling all of them, men and women alike, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so he goes on to flesh out this submission or to continue to apply this principle of submission by talking about marriage and parenting, the family, right? That's the focus, the Christian home. If the gospel doesn't take root in our home, doesn't matter where we try to live out the gospel elsewhere. We've got to walk in the fullness of the Spirit in our home. The gospel is going to transform us as individuals, then it will transform our families. And so as men and women walk in the Spirit, they use their strength to submit and serve one another. Husbands sacrificially love their wives. Wives respect their husbands. Parents shepherd their children. And children respect their parents. It even transforms the workplace, as Paul goes on to say later on in, in the, in, at the beginning of chapter 6. <clears throat> and so chapter 6 actually goes on to talk about as believers embody unity with the Spirit and unity with each other. Spiritual strongholds will be shaken. We will be attacked, tempted, and afflicted. But it is God's will for us to stand firm through the spiritual attack in the truths by which we are saved. And those truths are pictured as the armor of God. The armor of God as defensive a defensive mechanism is paired with the sword of the Spirit as the offensive mechanism and the prayer in the Spirit at all times. And so as we pray, as we wield the sword, as we, as we defend ourselves with the truths of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the promises of God, we can stand firm and we can be united and used for the glory of God. And that is the message of Ephesians, unity in Christ through the Spirit. And that unity overflows from the walls of a church building and the individuals that make up the church to transform the world in us and around us. And the message of Colossians is quite similar. If you had to sum up Colossians in one in one sentence, it would be finding spiritual strength to live through Christ. Remember, Paul had never visited Colossae. I'm turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Paul had never visited Colossae. People from Colossae, that is Epaphras, uh, had taken the gospel to uh, 
to the to, to the city there. The church was planted as individuals were saved. Maybe some of them, more than Epaphras, were saved through the ministry at Ephesus. They came back and started meeting, and just like the book of Acts, that that spilled over. Just like the goal of Ephesians, that fellowship and that community spilled over as a witness of the power of God at work in the individuals to establish them as a community of believers there. And that was the church in Colossae. And it's clear from the way that Epaphras shared with Paul and Paul's resulting letter that Gnostic teachers had come and they had sought to uh, teach those Gnostic doctrines, false doctrines, to the people there in Colossae. And that Gnostic false gospel was that they needed a higher knowledge. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. They needed a higher knowledge than just this simple teaching about Christ And so Paul begins with this epic poem about how in Colossians chapter 1 that there is no thing and no person higher than Jesus. You'll never get beyond Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but Jesus plus something equals nothing. We always need to remember that. We can never grow out of the need to hear about and exalt Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, he says in Verse 15, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now there's always going to be false teaching and false teachers who are going to seek to take individual Christians captive with the false truths that may sound right. And so the Gnostic teachers in Colossae could be compared to the prosperity gospel teachers in our day. But Paul's pattern is to always bring them back to Jesus and to this glorious gospel. That's why he says in Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, like the letter of Ephesians, Paul's desire for the Colossians is that they stand firm in Christ. For the Ephesians, Paul's recommendation was be filled with the Spirit. For the Colossians, the exact same teaching is phrased a different way. Set your minds on things that are above where Christ is. We say that in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 and 16 and 17. You see, the battle for spiritual life begins in the mind. And the truths about Christ are tools welded by the Spirit in your heart and in your mind. This is what leads to the kind of unity that Paul wanted for the church. In fact, we see this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in 
all. And so if you want these kind of relationships, then your responsibility is to provide a welcoming environment for the truth in your mind by cultivating a heart of adoration, surrender, and humility towards Scripture. That's what, that's what it means in Colossians 3.16 when Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's this picture of creating a hospitable environment for a guest and, and making sure that all the comforts are there so that they feel welcome. In the same way, we should prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God and we should respond to it because that is what the Holy Spirit is after. And so, like Paul said in Ephesians, this attitude, this this surrender, this fixation on Christ and where He is seated above in the heavenly places... It transforms everything. And so in a similar way to what he did in chapter uh, 5 and 6, in verse 18 of Colossians 3, Paul talks about how it transforms every relationship in our lives. He addresses wives and husbands and children and fathers and, and bond servants. And then in verse 23, he talks about that it affects our work ethic. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Can you can I can I and can I show you how much Paul meant this? Like Paul said in Ephesians, this transforms every relationship, and that's not an abstract principle. He really does mean every relationship. Pay close attention to verse 1 of chapter 4 in Colossians. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So we know that a man named Tychicus brought the letter to to Ephesus. Ephesians 6.21 tells us this. And then also to Colossae. Chapter 4 verse 7 tells us this. But there was a man with Tychicus named Onesimus. He was a person that had been converted under Paul's ministry and become like a brother to him. And somewhere along the journey, Paul asked Onesimus about his background. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says that Tychicus and Onesimus will, quote, tell you everything that has taken place here. Something incredible was obviously happening, and the church in Colossae was about to see how much the gospel transforms life. So Tychicus and Onesimus arrive at the church in Colossae with two letters. One for the church, that is the letter that we've been talking about, the letter of Colossians, and then one also, another letter for a person. That person was the host of the church, a wealthy man named Philemon, in whose home the church was meeting. I imagine that Philemon was shocked as he saw Onesimus, a person that was familiar to him, arrive and hand him a letter from Paul. And so Philemon, as we turn to Philemon, we see in Philemon, this is how far the gospel goes in transforming our relationships. You see, like Epaphras, Philemon was saved while Paul was in Ephesus. They'd gone back to Colossae and started the church there in Philemon's home. And Philemon was wealthy enough to have a big house and servants that worked for him, as it was common in that day. And at some point in the past, before Philemon had met Christ, 
a specific servant had stolen from him and had escaped. That servant used the money to buy a ticket to a faraway place. But unexpectedly, in that faraway place, that servant met Christ through the preaching of Paul. Grateful to this messenger of God, that servant became a brother to Paul. And as you might have guessed by now, that servant's name was Onesimus. So when Epaphras shows up and they're talking about the church in Colossae, Onesimus hears a familiar name, Philemon, his former master from whom he had stolen this money and escaped. You know, sometimes we try to forget our past. But God is not just interested in helping us understand that our the past sins and the penalty of our sins is, is under the blood of Christ and forgiven. We are trophies of God's grace. And Paul, I mean, uh, the Lord wants, wants to redeem our past. And I think that's why Paul had this experience for the church in Colossae and for Philemon and Onesimus in mind as he wrote this letter. Onesimus had shared with Paul some of his past, and now that past that what he had done before he met Jesus was coming back to haunt him. Paul and Onesimus have a decision to make. Will they face this situation recognizing that God has transformed both of these men, or will they try to figure out some man-made solution? Will they hire an some kind of mediator and do some kind of arbitration? and or, or will Paul just look at Onesimus and say, hey, you know, back to work? Or, or will Philemon do what he could have done and prosecute Onesimus as a criminal? Well, this, this is Paul, the man who believes in the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, who believes that, that faith is, in Jesus transforms relationships, and he believes that we must look at life through the lens of, a, of the gospel. And so it's in that vein that he writes Philemon a letter. And that letter can be summed up to say this, Philemon, you have an opportunity here. There are no accidents in God's plan, brother. God has saved you and called you to fix your mind on him. He has shrunk the world to bring this man who has wronged you back, but he's not coming back the same. And as he encounters you, you're not the same either. I want you, instead of fixing your eyes on the things that the world tells you you have the option to do, I want you to fix your mind on Christ. I want you to follow Christ in forgiveness so that as you forgive Onesimus, you can experience the depths of Christ's forgiveness for you. Don't just forgive him as someone who has wronged you. Embrace him as a brother in Christ. Now, the ball is in Philemon's court. Think of the surrender and obedience that Onesimus had as Paul lays out the letter and lays out the plan that Onesimus is going to deliver the letter himself to this man that he has wronged that is now his brother in Christ. What would Philemon do? The laws of Rome said that he could punish the man, but the truth of the gospel called him to forgive as he had been forgiven. And so for Philemon, think of the question. Brother, who will you follow? Who will you identify with? By what law will you live? The law of Rome 
or the law of Jesus? Which one will be a triumph of grace and forgiveness and redemption and testify of the power of God? You have the power to punish, but you also have the power to forgive in Christ. You see, Paul trusts that Philemon will respond positively to his request. How? That's because he knows that Philemon really knows Jesus and wants to follow him. Would you do that? Who would you identify with? You might say something like this, I can't forgive like that. God can't fix that relationship. I have the right to be hurt. Don't you realize what was done to me? Friends, you need to understand that forgiveness is not calling wrong things right. In fact, remember the gospel from the book of Romans. At no point does God ever call the wrong things that we have done right. Jesus died because they were wrong. But Jesus died to bring redemption and forgiveness and healing. And so for those who are victims, forgiveness does not mean restoration. Forgiveness does not even mean reconciliation. Forgiveness is a vertical transaction between the one that you have sinned against and God, God himself and you. And then forgiveness is a horizontal transaction between you and the person that has hurt you. Forgiveness is giving up the right to give to get even. You see, for many of us, the relationships in our life testify to our spiritual health. That's what we've seen in Ephesians. That's what we've seen in Colossians. And now that's what we've seen in Philemon. Husbands, are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? Wives, are you respecting your husbands as the church submits to Christ? Children, do you lovingly obey your parents? Parents, are you lovingly shepherding your children? Church members, do you really love the people around you? As Brother Yoon, the famous Chinese evangelist and church planner said, the purposes of unity is evangelism. Churches mar the gospel of Jesus Christ when they let divisions take root in them. And so may it never be the case with us. May we be people who exalt Jesus by forgiving seeking healing, seeking restoration, seeking reconciliation, especially among the body of Christ. And may God receive the glory from our unity. May God receive the glory from our clinging to the truth about who he is. And may God continue to build his kingdom one individual at a time as we live out the gospel.